Macarena Gomez Barris is a writer and scholar with a focus on queer ecologies and decolonial theory and practice. She's the author of The Extractive Zone, Social Ecologies and Decolonial Perspectives, and Beyond the Pink Tide, Art and Political Undercurrents in the Americas, among several other texts. She's working on a new book, At the Sea's Edge, that reflects on the space between land and sea, as well as other creative writing projects. In this conversation, she talks about solidarity. Solidarity in and among the global south against empire and extraction, and for the world to come. There's a great deal of hope in this interview, but it's the kind of hope that resonates with me because it says that in Gomez Barris's words, knowledge production can also be solidarity if it's multivocal and focused on exposing dispossession. Looking for this kind of solidarity, she finds something generative in the third space of shadow terms between above and below. For her, this is generative because it moves away from the binarized language forms we typically use and returns to things that have largely been submerged by oppressive forces. I think the focus on multiplicity and plurality is potentially helpful for those that are locked in different sorts of colonial spaces, where it's typically seen as sort of unrealistic or unimportant. Gomez Barra says, instead, it's actually this sort of experimentation that's going to liberate the globe. We devote time at the end of our conversation to the question of Gaza. Gomez Barris makes clear that there's a proliferating resistance to that escalating settler colonial violence that demands to be reckoned with. People who are already aware of Macarena's writing will know that she's really precise about the world-ending force of extractivism. What she says is that the extractive zone ultimately reduces life to capitalist resource conversion and trains us to reduce life to systems. That is not a thing that is natural and it's not a thing we need to accept. The first question I wanted to ask you uh, is about this you know, riveting piece of writing that you put out uh, recently entitled Life Otherwise at the Sea's Edge, where um, you write that, quote, as a small child, you spent long hours searching for anemones in the dense tide pools along Chile's central coastline where you say you sought ways to feel and peer into microbial worlds. Um, and what you say is that these smaller, barely discernible worlds fastened you to the submerged spaces of the oceanic as a lifelong obsession, um, a way of imagining things otherwise that liberated you from um, this kind of state of unbelonging that you describe um, that characterizes like the condition that most of us, I think, find ourselves in. And it's, it's difficult to kind of divorce ourselves from in order to kind of be in tune, as you say, with our liquid planet. And I just, you know, I want to say that I, I love that so much and, um, you know, reading it alongside some of your other work, it stood out as a, as a particularly intense personal reflection and I wondered if we could just sort of start by opening up a conversation about what it means to you to write in this kind of embodied, sensual way. Um, because there is a point in the extractive zone, for example, where you talk about how you don't want to overindulge in anecdote, uh, but still leave enough space, as it were, for um, a style that poetically builds a narrative of personal stake and commitment. Um, did you want to sort of speak to that at all? Thank you, Scott, for having me here with you and also for reading my work so closely. 
you know, I was trained as a sociologist who always had an attention to daily life and the workings of daily life and how people accomplish daily life, how I accomplish daily life. And I think I'm also attuned to the ways in which there's complexities across different ways of being and thinking and making meaning that are not accounted for in obviously in official archives, but even in public life or the usual skills by which we might measure or analyze things, be they the nation state or our personal identities or identity with broader groups. And for me, the state of unbelonging is actually a really important place from which to see and perceive and increasingly a kind of embodied approach to my writing and my study and my actions in the world and my tethering with other people and the more than human world have become a really important way to approach the work that I'm doing. And it requires attention and time and connection and maybe meditation Mm -hmm. and what Julieta Singh calls unmastery rather than disciplinary certainty of the outcomes. But I do think that in what I've called the colonial Anthropocene, um, in the space of rapid and intense change, these slower spaces are often written out of what actually might be the most important thing if we were to survive and see the other side of the colonial Anthropocene Like, what for? How do we want to make our lives Mm -hmm. there? What do we want to do on that side? And so that's what I'm writing to now, Mm -hmm. that space and from that space. Yeah, and uh, the notion of like unmastery or unthinking mastery is something that um, certainly stayed with me after reading uh, Julia Singh's book. Um, And I like that you gestured to it in terms of like what it can open up within maybe the context of a kind of energy transition that doesn't necessarily uh, attack or, or critique um, the um, enervating effects of a kind of extractivist state. Like there's a point at which uh, in the extractive zone where you talk about how petroleum and the carceral state are kind of one and the same uh, in maybe to the extent that they do feel like this kind of carbon cage that enervates us um, but I wanted to pick up on um, one, you know, some of the stuff that you were saying around um, the constraints of disciplinary knowledge. Like, there's so much in your writing that tries to untie disciplinary knowledge, um, which, as you say, kind of buries the subtlety and complexity of life as it's lived. Um, I like how you call your method a kind of undisciplined analysis, and just kind of, you know, you you spoke to it there, but. just maybe I wanted to ask you to unpack where you feel like that comes from. I mean, you you just talked about sort of being a sociologist that's paying attention to daily life, but um, what were the inspirations, the moments of uh, thinking otherwise that were opened up uh, for you in terms of like your training and untraining and, and learning to master output, but then learning to kind of unthink mastery and, and undo those outcomes or that way of thinking about outcomes? And why is it kind of valuable, I guess, to 
think about ways of doing theory that aren't constrained by like those conventions of thinking. That's wonderful. I mean, I think the undisciplined analysis is a kind of viewpoint that comes from a minoritarian perspective or a submerged perspective or perspectives that are not always easily aligned with a kind of dominant position. And I think in part coming out of dictatorship and kind of early terror communicated to me, not necessarily overtly, but in the way in which, for instance, my mother held my sister and I on the plane when we were, you know, very young and, you know, kind of fleeing for her life to to the United States that was so implicated in the Chilean coup of 1973 that overthrew mm-hmm. Salvador Allende's presidency. And I think those minor moments of communicated through skin, through pulse, through a kind of, I don't want to be here. I'm depressed to be here. This is a horrible ending for the beginning in, you know, of my life with these two daughters in this new immigrant land. And those really complex aspirations that really trouble the narrative of, you know, immigrant freedom. You know, you're supposed to land and be grateful. And I think that kind of mode of survivance is always allowed for me to see a number of different perspectives, to mediate a number of different perspectives, and to want to write from a number of different perspectives that doesn't lend well to a monocultural disciplinary lens, which is often trying to contain us to one perspective. I don't think my story is unique in that way. I think for a lot of graduate students that I train and work with, undergraduates that I speak to, we do bring our whole selves into a classroom. We do bring our whole selves to the writing of a book, potentially, but then we're asked to leave certain parts of ourselves out and certain viewpoints out. And I think if we were, that is the colonial training. And I think if we start to allow for that more complex viewpoint across pedagogies and ways of doing our work, even in in work spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Capitalism really draws very strongly upon that monocultural gesture. Yeah, I think that is very true. And like you think about the book as like a commodity that circulates and, and confers a certain expertise on the writer and how that Uh, book allows for a certain mobility for that writer, maybe, and even celebrity in some instances. And like, if you dig into a book or sort of look at its margins, sometimes you'll see uh, the person emerge, but often it's, it's not the focal point, you know, and maybe it shouldn't be, but I think it's interesting, for example, that you'll see the personal emerge, like in the acknowledgments, uh, and then it just gets turned off. It just gets switched off. And then there's another mode. Um, and that's not really how your book works. You do at, at the same time dedicate uh, the extractive zone to your mother, um, Vivian, uh, who you call an interlocutor and closest friend. But then, as you say, there's a way in which she she gets sort of carried through the text uh, with you. And, and, you know, there there are also these places that you're carrying with you through the book. You clearly value what you call situated site work, uh, which is an interesting way of, I think, like rephrasing a term like ethnography to make it, I think, more explicitly political. And you, at the same time, you say you're kind of conflicted about it. 
ultimately, it feels as though what you're saying is that there are times when it's necessary to shift into the first person. Um, when, for example, you describe your visit to the uh, Napo Wildlife Center in the Asuni region, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to ask about that specific moment in the text where you you are talking about ecotourist destinations. Why did you feel like you you did actually have to go and experience uh, that wildlife center, that ecotourist destination directly? And what did you sort of learn about the embodied experience of, quote, spiritual tourism that maybe you couldn't have discovered just by reading about it? There was no way to write a book like The Extractive Zone without being in dialogue and alongside communities that were struggling against the frontier, you know, in the frontier and against the frontier of extractivism and also alongside artists who are making other kinds of work. So for me, it was unequivocal. This is a pre-COVID book, and Mm -hmm. it was a moment in late capitalism when we were seeing massive new infrastructures. You know, Airbnb was really starting to blow up, TripAdvisor, um, you know, the kind of algorithms that would carry populations of tourists from the global north and from more privileged, you know, spaces within their own nation states to wild spaces, to indigenous spaces, to exotic spaces, et cetera. And all of that kind of embodied rearticulation and transit of a kind of orientalist view um, was just really blowing up in a way that I felt that I needed to name the kind of real estate speculative extractive view that I was seeing. At the same time, I also come from Sur America, from the South, from South America. There are many tropes about South America, but if you talk to many, many people in the United States, in the university, outside the university, there's not deep understandings necessarily of the implications of the United States in those histories or those histories. There's an imagination. But I felt I couldn't speak without actually being, again, alongside those in struggle. And I also know that there is so much that happens in practice, in embodied knowledge, in relationality, in relation with people, with groups, with collectivities on, you know, land that is not mine, land that is not ours. As settlers, we have to rethink it, decolonize it, think about the ways in which we are in relationship to people. But solidarity is also, you know, knowledge production can also be solidarity work. Hmm. Knowledge production that is multivocal and that is bringing forward people's perspectives in ethical ways from what's happening in the world. Some worlds, the capitalist world, should be un collapsed and undone. These heterogeneous worlds, pluriversal worlds, transversal worlds need to be lifted and um, supported. And we can't do all of that work through media. No, that's true, um, I think. And to just kind of stay for a minute with this sort of abstract, but still like very um, tangible thing of of trying to imagine knowledge production that is multivocal uh, in order to be kind of liberatory. 
I, I, you know, I wanted to ask you, I guess, to help us think about this notion of the submerged that you that you often counterpose to the extractive view. Um, so you're kind of you're trying to model, I think, a way of seeing that you sometimes characterize as, as submerged. Uh, these things that, as you say, need to be lifted are the submerged. To me, like that sort of um, framework is one that's distinct from, like, for example, the Marxist idea of subsumed labor. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know. So I guess the question is: Did submerged as a as a term, as a as a tool, as an idea, feel deeper than this mode of being that's sometimes demarcated as subsumption? which still seems to kind of worry about our usefulness or our value in economic terms on some level, or like what about submerged for you preserves the vitality of life that is unbridled to use the language that you're working with in the book. For me, what's interesting often is this kind of third space of shadow terms, say between above and below, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, the way in which a shadow term can actually reveal something else rather than the binarized language forms that we often use. So there is a political Mm -hmm. impetus in my work for sure. And there is a kind of desire to not reproduce a kind of speaking on behalf of the other. But at the same time, I do think that the submerged allows for the kind of histories of subalterity to be there potentially that kind of rich discussion that comes out of a longer arc of Stuart Hall's work and the way in which the submerged is always emergent Mm -hmm. or Paulo Freire's critical hope where something's about to break and maybe we just need the kind of coalescing of particular forces in a particular moment to open that up or something that's latent. Mm. Obviously through Fanon, we could think about collectivities but the submerged just feels like one of those terms that invites a lot of theoretical perspectives in rather than abandons them uh, in favor of one school. Yeah. I don't think we're in a moment, or maybe we've never been in a moment where one school of theoretical tradition can can do justice to what we're seeing. So for me, I'm really interested in working with language as its own meaning system that opens up those worlds and possibilities rather than closes those down. Yeah, that that resonates with me so much. And what I find really precise and profound in your work is that, you know, you're not just, for example, saying that extraction is bad, which it is, or that extractivism is blindness, which maybe it is, uh, but that the extractive zone reduces life to, as you say, capitalist resource conversion uh, and kind of trains us to reduce life to systems. You know, like it's it's hard to name those things without trying to kind of experiment with language. And you're you're using that experimentation to show how, you know, this thing that we might malign for good reason, we malign it for the reason that it makes speciesism or the kind of presumed supremacy of the human this unquestionable thing. And it like cherishes our extractive technocracies which is the term that you use, uh, as somehow synonymous with progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is original, too, about the approach you take in kind of maligning extractivism is that it is highly site-specific. Like, again, we're back to this idea of situated site work and kind of back to the ocean, which comes up so much uh, in your thinking. 
Um, you point out in a piece that most of the Earth's sea edges are colonized by real estate speculation, by urban cities and petrol infrastructures, by sewage and waste systems, and by industrial toxicity, and that the ocean has become an object of voyeuristic pleasure, national entertainment, fascination, leisure, danger, and scrutiny, but especially a geography of use value. It's just this, there's this kind of breathlessness to that writing. And your move is not to just like vilify the colonial logics that have led us down this road of exploitation, but to try to think about how the relation to the vast sublimity of the ocean could be restored. You say that you've come to see the sea edge as a conditional space and in between geography, a transitional zone between solid and liquid. Like that is such a simple and subtle insight. How did you come to that? Yes. I mean, it was really interesting when I was finishing up the extractive zone. I knew that I had more to think about and it was really at the level of seeing a kind of socialist transition to socialist democracies, if you will, um, in Latin America, where the kind of rise of the pink tide was happening. So then I wrote Beyond the Pink Tide and was really thinking with artistic and political undercurrents and the undercurrents being about seeing these kind of mass movements that brought, you know, Evo Morales and many others, you know, in a forward movement to the front uh, of a kind of national consciousness and political projects, but then also seeing how those movements continued to be, um, even though they were speaking on behalf of Earth and writing Earth constitutions, et cetera, uh, there, which was really important. I don't want to say that that was a very important moment in the struggle, right, for understanding what's happening in the world sure. today. But that was also met with the opening of, you know, mega dams and et cetera, and uh, lithium fields and so forth. And so that was really discouraging to see the distance between rhetoric and, um, you know, policies once again. So that was one way in which I thought mm -hmm. about, you know, undercurrents and their potentials, that there were other ways that people were organizing, writers, you know, movement builders, makers, thinkers, activists, sometimes in the same body or social body. And the geochoreographic work that was being done across spaces that moved below the level of the nation state. And so it made sense to follow a river or made sense to follow a shoreline and think about those histories mm -hmm. um, rather than following normal political or normative political geographies. So that all was pretty clear in my mind, but then really delving into what it means to write, create, think as spaces that I was opening up for myself in conversation with others, other writers, that I realized that there's a kind of way in which writing about nature and writing about the natural world was also either put into a kind of category of purity or on the other hand, really a kind of space of the normative political. I'm just going to use that language as a shorthand. So that's where it mm. came for me. But spending time with someone like Mae Stevens, which I open the book, the preface in The Extractor Zone, was very important. The socialist feminist painter who 
saw so many things on the coast in our walks together and our talks together. And I think, you know, hearing, just reading the kind of work of poets like Adela Nan and Cian Fogg, Nine Fog, Cian Fogg, thinking with the, her night work, thinking with poetry, observing, mm-hmm. being with the sea, Cecilia Vicuña and her mode of just playing with the sea and seeing that the sea sensed her and she that the sea oriented to her, using the pronoun her, thinking of the more than human beingness, allowed for that kind of complete opening of language for me. And from that day forward, you know, I was just able to really kind of understand differently. Now, that's not to say that I want to abandon all of the vocabularies that I've learned along the way. I do think that there's something really important from the critical social sciences to bring forward here from all of those theories, you know, from other moments Mm -hmm. and other spaces to describe the absolute ruin of the political economies of capitalist extraction. And, but to kind of continue to create a kind of writing practice that has depth to it and it has subtlety to it, but is also very acutely pointing the finger at the culprits, you know, mm-hmm. and that's taken many, many years of work. And I don't, it's, that's going to be the project of the rest of my life, honestly. It's a terrific, uh, you know, uh, commitment to make. It's, it's difficult though, uh, to kind of weave together, um, a critique of, for example, you know, you talk about, um, economic dependency and this kind of persistent environmental degradation in Ecuador um, and have the specific method that you, that, you know, I, I, I don't know that it's like unique to your work, but certainly feels unique for um, creating a specific history of, um, you know, uh, uh, the global South or South America, which you say remains central to the global economy despite its marginal status, right? So it's like, you're dealing with all of these um, political realities, but you're doing so in this in this poetic way that certainly feels inspired by um, uh, art making. And and one of the artworks that I think it, reading the book has most touched you in some ways is "Damned Landscapes." It's uh, you know talk you talk about it at length and how it it shows the trail of barren territory left in the wake of hydropower's advancement. You you know, you talk about how in Spanish, dam can also mean to repress. And I wondered if you could just maybe describe a little bit about dammed landscapes, because, you know, it does feel distinct in some ways from, um, you know, maybe more aloof critical works like Edward Bertinsky's photographs, for example, that offer a kind of God's eye view of extractive projects. You know, what is going on in Saqueto's piece that allows a more deeply political sense of visuality where it, you know, there's like a problematizing of the links between like the empirical, the material, the imperial, the colonial that doesn't um, just perpetuate a logic of colonial dispossession, what you call a kind of counter visuality. Yes, I mean, I think her counter-visual practice or aesthetics or against the extractive gaze aesthetics are really about locating the work in a range of media 
and also the fact that she's from those communities. So I'll say something about each of those things. The first is that she's using the kind of weapons of, you know, military infrastructures, the drone, satellites, the usual uh, kind of media technologies, and there's so many of them, heat sensors, et cetera, that kind of are able to map the earth, Google map the earth in ways that really draw and can extract resources from it. And so she's counter using those technologies to then think about, you know, the ways in which, in fact, we can watch a river disappear over time through a kind of chronology and um, kind of chronotopic mapping that she does in order to see how the satellite gives us uh, a disappearance of the Magdalena River or the Yuma River. And um, very sad to see those images in many ways, but she's using a kind of medium range and satellite views and all kinds of views. And so that's the first thing, this kind of counter mapping, I'd call it, that's used by activists across the Americas and across the world to fight the huge mega infrastructural projects that have taken place mm-hmm. in our place that are extractive. The other is a kind of relational project that she's, she's not the only one, but I think she's wonderful at it. And there are many artists and visual thinkers and even, you know, filmmakers who do this, which is to really think at a communal level and show the communal scale, show how it's not that people are just living, um, Alongside the river, they are the river. People are not just, you know, side project to the land or the land is not just what they, you know, um, settle upon. They are the land. And so that kind of integration of self and community and indigeneity and, um, you know, rural peoples often, mestizex and indigenous peoples often, have that relation and she that shows up in the work. She doesn't absent that perspective. But then she goes even a kind of further step to imagine, you know, what it would be like to um, see from the fish point of view. And that's where her and I align in the submerged perspective so that, you know, a kind of more than human perspective that's in the muddy waters, that's below the surface of the river that allows us to potentially see or not see something else. And I want to give a shout out, and I didn't say this in a previous response, but I think that's also very aligned with a kind of Caribbean philosophy and poetic view, Glissant and others, where there's a kind of submergence or attempt to think from relations with land and ocean that are pretty different from beginning with, say, the category of the worker or another kind of um, way into the material and analysis. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the particular way that you do, let's say, philosophy is about like pushing against the kind of entrenched ways that maybe we relate to the non-human world, um, which which is about this kind of like openness to experimentation. There's something seductive to me about that philosophy almost of change. There is this weird idea that human beings as a species um, are are fundamentally resistant to change. And I, I kind of bristle at that notion because it, it says that, you know, valuing experimentation is like wishful thinking. It castigates wishful thinking 
uh, thinking that is full of wishes, the wish for a deeper connection to land, um, as somehow immature or something. And I think the kinds of art that you um, want to kind of dwell with um, that disorient the viewer, that um, are experimenting with surrealism and nonlinear time and, and challenging occupation, as you put it, in order to decolonize perception, like they're not just beautiful. Um, sometimes they're the opposite. Sometimes they're unsettling. And yet it is exactly in that kind of unsettling quality that you see what you call a hub of creation happening. And I guess I wanted to ask in relationship to that um, valuing, I guess, of experimentation, what you think it is about experimental film, for example, that unlocks a kind of indigenous relationality, um, that you know unlocks suppressed modes of being otherwise in the world, and, and even kind of almost like ridiculing that extractivist war on nature uh, and, and sort of displacing its, its presumption that we don't desire change. I mean, I think that's really beautifully put. And I think part of it is that we haven't necessarily in a kind of Western, um, you know, logocentric approach to uh, theorization and and change really considered beyond the human. And so it's almost that we've taken ourselves out of the processes from which we emerge, you know, and that real sense of like, what does it mean to be grounded, to, you know, to think uh, like a tree, to, um, you know, imagine connection with, you know, the riverways and the waterways around us, and not just to constantly be in the space of alienation from those forces, uh, the air that we breathe. I do think that that it does require a kind of thinking with them more than human, really, and decentering the human. And that might allow for, yeah, a different theory of change. Yeah. The spaces that I sometimes operate in, these institutionalized spaces, it's all about like change management and trying to sort of sell the notion that change is good against this presumption that there's going to be resistance to it. Um, you know, uh, there's this... Um, there's this essay in the New Left Review that I keep going back to uh, by, by uh, Marco Daramo that ends with a kind of indictment of technocracy as this kind of change-averse brinksmanship that has led us to this moment of, of annihilation and, and you know militarizing of borders. He says, in today's world, we rely on elites, technocrats, the cognitive aristocracy to pilot us through perilous waters with their superior wisdom. But what does this stratum of decision makers really know? Judging from the shipwreck they're heading towards at top speed, the answer is not much. Um, and I think like this is part of decentering the human. It's part of, it's decentering a particular notion of the human, a logocentric one, as you put it, or a um, a technocratic one, you know, that is addicted to a certain kind of uh, militaristic mastery. Um, and this is sort of a way for us to kind of get into the impossible question of Gaza. Um, you know, there there is a moment in the extractive zone where you talk briefly about um, Israeli settler colonialism and the occupation of Palestinian territories. Um, you, you're trying to imagine a means of, as you say, countering the vast armament of the state. 
uh, which has long contracted with U.S. and Israeli companies to expand its occupation of indigenous territories as well. So there's this kind of global reach of the the kind of architecture of um, you know settler colonial subjugation, basically. Um, you know, in a in a more recent piece, you talk about how war is not coming; it is here, and it's always been here for at least six centuries. It just gets louder and more voracious in new ways. Um, so, you know, I don't know how we open up this conversation um, without just moving into a place of obvious, you know, kind of compulsory condemnation. So I did want to give you an opportunity to talk about how right now our decolonial desires are with Gaza and how maybe in this moment you can suggest ways for us not to retreat into nihilism. It's so difficult. You know, we are speaking from such a deep and tragic colonial wound, um, as is Gaza. And at the same time, the kind of incredible, beautiful, traumatic, terrible, but proliferating resistance, both from within Gaza and across the world. And I do think that this struggle for liberation unfortunately has come from some of the most oppressed people on earth. And I have written a little bit about that and, you know, and Gaza and Palestinian liberation, because of course, Chile is the largest Palestinian community of diaspora outside of Palestine currently. And it's a really different space from which to think in the global South because Palestinians, like they are all over the world, but certainly in Chile, you know, there are Congress people, there are people, you know, um, across Chilean society. Palestinians are very integrated into Chilean society, but also very much at the forefront of a lot of change there and not always coming from a place of dispossession, but really from powerful voice. In Beyond the Pink Tide, I actually wrote about Anatiju and her song with Palestinian Shadia Mansour, the wonderful DJ called Somos Sur, We Are the South, and how that was such a celebration of indigeneity, of cross-global South, Arab solidarities, of acknowledgement of a kind of Arab Americas. I want to mention that now because we are mm-hmm. in that moment when that kind of deep solidarity is absolutely necessary And maybe it is a new left, but it certainly surpasses a new left. We can see how the noose is tightening in terms of militarization, in terms of censorship, in terms of authoritarian practices, in terms of a rise of authoritarianism, rise of fascism. These trends were already happening and, of course, happening over the bodies of Black and Indigenous peoples and lands and territories. But that noose is really just so visible to us now. And that war machine is so visible to us now. And I just think that I thank you for opening the question and we must do everything possible because it's not just Gaza. It's the fight for everyone and the planet. Mm -hmm. I believe that it's a fight for the dispossessed that's under siege right now. 
And the outcomes of this are just enormous. It's not the only front we're fighting. We're struggling against many fronts currently and against media conglomerates, against what's happening in Congo and other parts in Africa, the right-wing move in Argentina, you know, anti-Indigenous legislation that people thought would pass in Australia. It is a deeply intense moment, mm-hmm. but I think it's also a moment that requires enormous strength and courage in the face of a police and military and media apparatus and governance structure that really is out for not only revenge, but for land and expansion. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think like it does require a degree of strength and courage in order to resist that nihilism that you, I think, correctly identify as a, as a threat to morale in some sense, like the, the, um, the spirit of, of resistance that is going to be required. There's a moment I wanted to gesture to, um, that I think, uh, you know, aligns with this, where you say that that strength and that courage can come from, um, you know, maybe a resistance to borders. You talk, for example, about like, um, you know, trying to undo that attachment to borders by like moving with water. Um, but, you know, this this one moment in particular where you talk about um, in times such as these that demand politically committed research, writing and activism, we might consider wonder, curiosity, porosity and imagination as as superfluous to our worldly engagement. But, you know, those forms of living and perceiving are not, you say, immature or secondary, but deeply invest in sensual experience as a way to oppose the colliding structures of amnesia and loss represented by racial and extractive capitalism. That um, if we want to uh, fight climate change, if we want to fight um, militaristic expansion, um, the, the, the plunder of, of resources in the global South, um, it, it, it's obviously going to be engendered by anger, uh, and outrage, but what if too, it can be, uh, um, charged with this kind of sensual experience and an, a specific kind of attachment to the, a vision of the world that could be right. I think so much of your work is really, um, motivated by that counterposing of wonder against nihilism um, that is a specific kind of practice of hope, I think, um, rather than imagining hope as a commodity, something that we have or possess, right? Um, it's just, it's more, there's something more durable about, about that notion of hope that I really appreciate. I'm so glad because, of course, it's been used to keep liberal humanist approaches alive and a kind of commodification of you set as you said it by political elites to suggest that we must hope you know and then of course our our hopes are dashed right. so it is a moment of absolutely systemic transformation and i see how young people are smiling as they're getting arrested uh for their views on gaza and for asking for divestment or simply asking for a ceasefire. Mm. Something that you would imagine can never be politicized, which is 
you know, killing and destruction of life. But of course, it is deeply mm -hmm. politicized, and there is no current consensus on that. Even amongst people that I thought, of course, this would be a logical way to create a baseline. Our baselines are getting lower and lower in order to bring more people in at the institutional level. But that's not what's happening on the ground. Young people are right. no, and are you know, and, and and not just young people, you know, across generations, but maybe led by Palestinian youth, led by Palestinians themselves, and both inside and outside Gaza in the diaspora um, and indigenous-led leadership, the ways in which, you know, this, we know that this is, this is big. There've been, there've been many fights and, you know, I had deep political training from being on the ground in El Salvador in the 1990s, shortly after the war in 1994 and living with, communities of women who were in a, in a place in El Salvador that was extremely bombed out and with U.S. support and um, Wasapa, a mountain that was beautiful. And the combatants there, I learned a lot from the kind of aftermath of lives and how people lived in the aftermath of war and with, you know, white phosphorus being dumped on their communities. And it was terrible to see that and to understand all that had been lost. And so that brought me back to Chile and the disappeared and the dis detained and the criminalized people of that war against people who were trying to liberate their country from foreign resources and occupation, be it um, financial occupation um, and that liberation struggle ended in dictatorship as we know and so I feel that my early training is so gives me a clear perspective on we have to fight with everything right now and in all of the spaces and you know clearly the world knows this mm -hmm. yeah that there exist roadmaps, as you say, for how we can do this. I think what you just said is a, a beautiful way to conclude. Um, so thanks so much for making the time today. I really appreciate it. Scott, thank you very much and good luck with everything you're doing. And thank you for the space. It's been wonderful to be engaged with you.